Hello everyone, and welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and thank you so much for taking some time to listen today. This is the second episode of a two-part series that I am covering on the murders of Billy Weinbrenner, Melody Pistorio, and Gregory Taylor. These were the murders of three teenagers, as well as two other people were kidnapped, and yet another person was shot, but thankfully survived. So I do always give a disclaimer in my episodes that, you know, the discussions that we have will, you know, detail some triggering events such as, you know, murder, injury, death. Um, in this case, also child abuse and even discussion of the death penalty. So the topics are usually pretty heavy and serious, but, you know, in this case, there's even a couple other um, types of events that are occurring within all one crime spree that happened in the summer of 1990. So I do normally have a longer intro, but um, the only other thing I will add is, you know, it's very vital that you listen to part one first. So if you've not done so yet, um, please go back and listen to the prior episode. I'll also link it in the description along with the sources as normal. Because of the length of the episode will probably be pretty long. I just want to get straight into the events that occurred after the trial and convictions of John Thanos for all of the charges that were brought against him, and those were what I previously just mentioned. The only other thing that I will add is I normally mention that I also will go into YouTube and upload a video that includes some pictures or you know other things that I think are more visual with the case, a lot of times it's, you know, pictures of the victims with some pictures also of the convicted. However, I guess because of the time frame, I really could not find any pictures of Melody, Billy, or Gregory um, when I did a Google search. The only pictures I found were for another Gregory Taylor that was involved in a murder case. So... You know, there were really no confirmed pictures that I could use. So because of that, I decided just to upload the audio. So it will still be there if, you know, someone does prefer to listen on YouTube, you know, have it going on in the background. But at the same time, I'm not going to have the normal pictures that I would have. Um, This also goes for the previous episode, even though I'd anticipated being able to find um, some photos to use, I wasn't able to. Let's pick up where we ended yesterday, which um, was a quote made by Thanos' mother after his conviction and in response to um, the sentence of the death penalty. And I'm just going to repeat that quote because I think it's kind of a good segue, both ending yesterday's, or I should say the previous episode, I just 
recorded it yesterday when I'm compared to when I'm recording this, but, um, you know, it kind of encompasses both a reaction of what he'd just done as well as transitioning into the penalty. So Patty Thanos said that her son once told her, I want to kill in order to be killed. And she further added, he said he was going to get that he was getting too old and didn't have the guts to kill himself, so he was going to have a shootout with police, end quote. So this was, you know, something he had mentioned in the past. Um, in, you know, the wake of him being sentenced to death and him deciding not to fight it, she and her daughter did try to file appeals um, for him, but Thanos did not want them to. He said he accepted you know, the sentence. And in fact, during the, um, the actual penalty phases, it did seem as though he made that pretty clear that he wanted the death penalty. Now, I do also think it's important to explain a little bit about how Maryland went about the process of carrying out an execution, you know, especially considering they had not done one in quite a while. So the state of Maryland had not performed an execution in more than three decades. In, within those three decades, the Supreme Court did actually have a moratorium on the death penalty. And as such, the Maryland legislation that kind of governed the death penalty, it lapsed. Um, so once the Supreme Court had lifted the moratorium, then Maryland did not reinstate it. They did not reinstate it until 1994, which was four years after Thanos had committed his crimes. But, you know, given any case where you would want to reinstate it, the prosecutors really looked at this one um, and decided to move forward with requesting the death penalty. Also, Maryland did not publish the date and time of an execution. This goes back to a law from 1922, and it was in response to the way that the death penalty was carried out at that time. It was carried out by public hangings, and there had been crowds, and even in cases of you know, people, for lack of any better word, storming the deceased and collecting souvenirs and taking things from the executed person's body. So in response, there was a law enacted in 1922 so that only the corrections commissioner knew the exact day and time as to when um, the execution would occur. What occurred then was the, for everybody involved that would need to be there for the execution was given a week block of time. So um, from Monday, 12.01 a.m. to you know Sunday, um, 11.59. So whoever was involved knew that there was a possibility they could be called in um, for the execution to take place. Certain officers of the court or those who were required to be there, as well as some journalists, were given three hours notice, whereas the convicted was given only one hour. In order for the family of the convicted person to spend time with them, 
before the execution, they were allowed to come visit the week prior. What this did, though, was you know, for the victims' families, some of them did want to be there. And so, of course, it could have taken away from some of their sense of closure by not being able to be there. Now, just one observation that I made was looking back at some cases, um, you know, especially cold cases that I've you know, watched documentaries on or I've read about, usually if someone is convicted and sentenced for a crime, they have to be sentenced on the guidelines of when that crime occurred. So if someone committed a crime 30 years ago, um, and usually if they're convicted after 30 years, it would be a murder case since there's no statute of limitations. They would be sentenced on the, you know, murder or if it was manslaughter, whatever they ended up being convicted for or pled to. The sentencing would be based on the minimum and maximum time frames in, you know, the, the law book at that time. So looking at this one, I'm kind of wondering since, you know, Marilyn did have the death penalty on the books, but it just was not reinstated. You know, was that something that the attorneys for Thanos could have looked at and said, this is you know, something that's invalid, the, the actual sentence of the death penalty is invalid because it had not be, been reinstated yet or was it still valid because even though it hadn't been reinstated it was still you know a part of the law books so to speak I didn't really find anything on that it was just something that I found interesting and you know since it did not say that any of the attorneys brought that up I'm thinking it was kind of a moot point um, you know, again, it was just kind of something that I saw and it brought to mind some cold cases I'd seen in the past. Now, um, Thanos' attorney did provide a little bit of a more intimate glimpse into Thanos' mind. He had spent a lot of time with him over the course of many cases. And what his attorney said was, what he did was reprehensible. That's true. The other thing is he is extremely damaged. He is an extremely damaged human being, and really, in our society, we should not kill sick people. He really is a sick person. So I think to a certain degree, anybody who commits crimes that are even comparable to this, so murder, kidnapping, senseless violence, to an extent, I think we can all say they are damaged to a certain degree. And of course, those degrees vary um, depending on the individual circumstances. But, you know, to say that someone who commits horrendous crimes is not at least to a little bit of a degree. I, I almost hate to use the word damage, but that's what was used in the quote um, is damaged. You know, that really I don't think there's really any argument that there has to be at least a little bit, um, for them to commit those crimes. But this kind of brought me back to Patty's, um, Patty's quotes. 
where she said that her son had actually just come out and said he wanted to be killed. Now, this was 1990, and even though the discussion of mental health is somewhat taboo today, it was extremely taboo then. So even though my first natural instinct would, was when I read this, was didn't she reach out to somebody? You know, John was now no longer in the home um, under the thumb of an abusive father. He was an adult. So why didn't she reach out to someone to get him help? Because you know, not only would it be helping him, but looking at the aftermath of, you know, what occurred after this conversation, then many, many other victims would not have fallen victims to his crimes and their families wouldn't also have to have dealt with the repercussions. Then I had to think, there is no internet where she could have gone online and tried to find, you know, resources for him. And even if there was the internet, would there have been resources available? So, you know, going forward, I think we also need to take a step back and realize this is not a case that's occurring today where, you know, we would be able to reach out to, you know, different services, whether it was um, the local division of um, social services. I know it's different names in different states, um, but that same general idea, um, national helplines, you know, those just weren't a thing then. So my first instinct was to really question Patty, but I think she had limited resources to really act on. Now, I did mention, you know, Thanos did not want to really fight the death penalty. Um, he did not want anybody to file appeals, but people did continue to do so on his behalf. Um, the ACLU, or the American Civil Liberties Union, was one of those entities, and they kind of echoed the concerns about how competent Thanos was. Some legal representatives even tried to have him declared incompetent and put his mother and sister in charge of his decisions, but that did not work. The big question then comes is this state-assisted suicide. So looking at the competency of you know, Thanos at this time, as well as looking back at when he committed the crimes, the court then had to look at what was his mental state? Um, was he technically you know, either not competent to be active in his decision-making or you know, was he not competent at the time and that would mitigate um, the penalty or the punishment. This did bring about a few different doctors with differing opinions. Two mental health experts testified on behalf of the defense and they said that Thanos had borderline personality disorder and that along with that disorder came um, difficulty with controlling anger and he also had a poor sense of self. So with this you know, diagnosis, I looked into the exact definition of borderline personality disorder. And according to BetterHelp, which I have to say is not a sponsor, it's just where I found a good definition or what seemed to be you know, a, a good definition, described borderline personality as, quote, a disorder 
is a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others, causing problems functioning in everyday life. It includes self-image issues, difficulty managing emotions and behavior, and a pattern of unstable relationships. So given this description, it really in some ways describes a lot of people. Um, you know, there's trauma in many people's pasts that, you know, can lead to some or all of these symptoms that were just mentioned in this definition. So there are many ways in which then um, borderline personality disorder can present itself. Now, first, I am not in any way a mental health expert. I will share that I have, you know, had my own mental health struggles. And at times I've had crippling anxiety. Um, thankfully, I've, I've been treated and I'm still undergoing the treatment to maintain, you know, my ability to control the anxiety. Um, now, when I was much younger, and this is actually the first time I'm discussing this particularly, I was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Um, my description would be that it was at a low level. You know, there really wasn't, um, you know, any follow-up with me regarding that. I had, you know, met with a therapist or a psychologist. I, it's really been so long ago, I can't even remember what the exact credentials were. And she said that, um, you know, I had some of the, I guess you'd say personality traits and, there really just was no follow-up though beyond that. So that's why I'm describing it as low level. Now, some people, you know, just overall have a fear of being abandoned and that can come from incidents in their childhood or early adulthood, you know, just things that have happened that have created this sense of, you know, being alone or having those that they love abandon them. And just so happened that within 24 hours of um, recording the first episode, I actually either read about or watched documentaries of different cases that, you know, the, the suspect or the convicted was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I just found that interesting that within such a short period of time, I came across really randomly. I was not looking at cases. Um, one documentary did just happen to be one that covered a few different crimes. So it was mentioned multiple times for a couple of different people on that particular um, documentary. So I really had to wonder about the just long list of symptoms that um, that presented in borderline personality disorder. I also had to kind of look at it and think, is that a term or disorder that's being used to just encompass a wide array of symptoms that many different um, suspects or criminals happen to have? It just seemed like that was a lot of people, a lot of cases with all the same disorder. Now, the thing is, as with any other 
mental health disorder. Most people who have borderline personality disorder, and I'll be calling it BPD going forward, they live functional and productive lives. They've either learned to cope with the symptoms through either treatment, um, whether that be therapy or through medication or both. And in some cases, it may have almost erased you know, those symptoms as long as they keep up the treatment and be cognizant of what those symptoms are. Now, one psychiatrist named Thomas Goldman, who testified on Thanos' behalf, um, talked about how Thanos' family life had influenced the man that he had become. Well, in a lot of ways, that kind of goes without saying. Anybody's family um, will influence, to some extent, what they become as an adult. Goldman went on to say that BPD um, in Thanos was because his long, young life had really been chaotic. Um, he did specifically point to an instance where Thanos' father had punched him in the groin. He also cracked a bone in the, the wrist. Um, it was described as a psychic torture. The other psychologist that um, testified on behalf of Thanos said that borderline personality disorder would not allow him to act in the ways in which society would um, deem appropriate. And quoting from the article, it said, Thanos' personality disorder prevented him from conforming his behavior to the requirements of the law. Donner continued to say that he is a very, he is a very seriously disturbed individual. Personally, I, I think that is a bit of an understatement there, to say the least, um, given the crimes that he committed. But at what point does having a disorder then say, okay, that's enough of a mitigating circumstance that either the convicted should not be given whatever sentences are available for the crimes he committed or that the person needs to undergo mental health treatment in a facility and not a prison. On the reverse side of the coin, we also had a doctor um, testifying for the prosecution, and that was Neil Blumberg. He did concur that Thanos had borderline personality disorder. However, he did not see that the BPD would impact him to the point that he'd not be able to distinguish that shooting innocent people who posed absolutely no threat to him was a bad thing to do. In other words, he knew right from wrong. In the judicial system, the ability to tell right from wrong is really a keystone to determine if a person was or was not suffering some type of mental impairment or um, you know, was able to distinguish that what they were doing could cause you know, a harmful impact and it was something that they should not do. Even though a person may have BPD, that does not mean they can't distinguish between right and wrong. And even though they may have issues controlling their anger, it cannot be then an excuse to commit crimes without repercussions. Every day, we see people convicted because they have issues with anger. There are anger management courses, and we hear of people being sentenced to the anger management courses. 
um, after they've had a conviction. A lot of times it's with a first offense. I can't say it's with every first offense. I'm just saying typically, you know, those are some of the avenues that are taken instead of just jail time or in conjunction with jail time in certain cases where anger was really the overwhelming factor. So we can't just dismiss out of hand that if someone has trouble controlling their rage, okay, does that mean they're suffering from a mental illness and then can no longer be held responsible to the fullest extent of the law for the crimes they commit at that time? My thought would be that if you know many crimes were just sentenced based on that mitigating factor that they may have a personality disorder or have trouble controlling their anger, society would be in a very, very difficult position because, you know, a lot of crimes would then be going unpunished. I think also given not only Thanos's case, but just also the influx of a lot of cases that have the diagnosis of BPD, and even though I've mentioned five cases I saw within a very short period of time, there have also been cases in the past where that was um, the diagnosis that I've either read or heard about. So, again, it can't really be used as the catch-all diagnosis. And I also feel that it does a disservice for those who do have a mental illness illness or mental disorder, um, personality disorders, to say that you know, basically if you use those as complete mitigating factors, it's saying then that most people with these types of disorders can't control themselves. I think that is completely unfair and illogical considering the vast majority of people who have you know, whether it's anxiety, rage issues, BPD, every day do what they need to do to become and be or continue to be productive members of society. They don't commit outrageous crimes that are harmful to dozens, if not hundreds of people and affect the community. So it really does do a disservice to the millions and millions of people who approach every day um, having a mental disorder, who successfully navigate the day and you know, don't do things like this. It's, it's just, for me, it's, it seems rather insulting to almost insinuate that it should be used as a mitigating factor in this case because then it just opens up this domino effect, in my opinion. Arguments supporting the fact that BPD should have been a mitigating factor did make me think then what should be the treatment then if you know this was really looked at as a large mitigating factor in Thanos was not going to be executed, what type of treatment plan would he have had? It was extremely obvious that he was violent and he had served much of his adulthood in and out of jail. So after his conviction, whether or not 
he was going to serve a long lifetime sentence in jail or if he was awaiting the death penalty, what type of treatment would he have? Would he, as an individual, be able to have that choice? Or since he was in the custody of the state, you know, um, I guess you would say the penitentiary system or penal system, would he really have a say in it or would the state determine his treatment? If he was in jail, would he be undergoing treatment to make sure the other prisoners were kept safe? Safe, Because it's obvious at this point that he does have trouble with anger and does not think things through. If he was in a treatment center instead of going to jail, again, the issue has to be raised. How would you keep everybody else in that facility safe, whether it be patient or staff, visitors, because, you know, how would you be able to control Thanos's anger? And this would apply not only to him, but anybody else who would use this as the mitigating factor in their punishment. At what point do or does society, um, the government that legislates um, punishment and treatment, would there ever be a point in time where they would say, you know, it's not up to the individual in regards to what kind of treatment plan they have. It is up to the state entirely. Does that then infringe on the person's civil liberty? So again, it just creates this whole domino effect to use something as pretty much the sole mitigating factor, and that was the BPD. Um, and what I'm saying in regards to that, it, when I say it's the only mitigating factor, I'm using it to kind of cover everything because the doctors stated that it was abusive childhood that brought um, forward the BPD. So I'm not negating the abusive childhood. I'm just saying it's all included within the BPD. So that and it's you know just the treatment itself then of BPD also brings up its, you know, entire litany of questions in regards to civil liberties as well, because it is the job then of the prison system and the state to keep other prisoners safe. Um, no matter what one may feel about that, it is definitely you have to treat, you know, make sure that other visitor or I'm sorry, other prisoners are kept safe as well. And having someone who has such rage issues would be very difficult in a hospital or treatment center condition um, as compared to a prison. There are so many things that are really finely nuanced in this case, and it's hard to sit back and just take everything in. Um, that's why I said this was going to be a very long episode because... You know, I, I have notes, I have an outline, but still, as I'm talking, more and more things are coming to mind, and who knows, it may even end up being longer than I anticipated, but that's just because there are so many fine points to this. We can look at it and just say it's the case of an angry man who, for no good reason, not that there's ever a good reason to kill someone other than in self-defense, um, but, you know, he, again, did not feel 
any um, threat coming from any of the people that he harmed. So no reason killed people, kidnapped people, shot another man, not to mention all of the other crimes he convict or that he committed before then. He was a dangerous man. And at what point do or does the protection of society outweigh the liberties of an individual? The debate over the death penalty will always be a very intense one, a very polarizing one, and it really is something that cannot be taken lightly. You know, it's looking at putting an individual to death. And there are so many things that can come into play when coming up with that sentence. And it begins with, just for one, the decision as to whether or not the prosecution's even going to seek the death penalty. Um, I don't think any single person within the confines of law would ever, ever enjoy the, the prospect of going after the death penalty for someone. It's something that is not taken lightly, and nor should it be. When discussing the death penalty, things do have to be considered. And yes, one of them is the mental state of the convicted. There are people who have very valid mental illness or disorders that do severely impact their judgment and need to be treated. There are, you know, very, very true and valid instances of this. So I'm not saying at no point should mental illness never be considered as a mitigating factor. I'm just saying, you know, looking at this case, I think that he knew right from wrong. So looking at the mental disorder and the abuse in the past, yes. Okay, that was part of him. That did happen to him. And we can have sympathy and empathy for the child that he was and that he was never given the opportunity to grow up in a, you know, loving and, you know, caring home. But again, there would be the whole domino effect of what would we allow then everybody who was in those circumstances to do. So, again, those who do legitimately fall under um, you know, not knowing right from wrong, not being able to control themselves at all, do need to be treated. That is something that we cannot ever stop looking at um, because once we do stop looking at the mental state of the convicted, the fairness or equity and application of any sentence, you know, really would be tossed away. And so we do need to make sure that fairness and equity is part of every single um, criminal conviction, every sentence. And we also have to look at what constitutes cruel and unusual punishment while still acting as, you know, a just system and looking at whether or not it should be um, used as a deterrent for crime. That is also up for debate. Some people say yes, some people say no. 
we then have to look at the callousness and cruelty of the crime. You know, to be convicted and sentenced to death, it would involve then the murder of another person, at least one, in this case, multiple people. So that is pain and loss and grief felt by each victim's loved ones, the community around them, and sometimes there is no healing completely after these violent crimes. And if anyone has ever been the victim of a violent crime, even if it was not murder, the impact stays forever. You know, I had a friend whose car was stolen. That is a minor property crime. And I say minor because she did get the car back. But she didn't feel safe anymore where she lived. I've watched testimony of a woman whose house was broken into. And she found he'd, he'd been in a number of different rooms, even into her bedroom while she was at work. She knew that this person had friends and family in the community and even possibly an accomplice. So the security that this person felt in their own home that they'd lived at for decades was gone. And some of the things that were stolen could not be replaced. So even looking at nonviolent crimes where the person... Um, the victim is not confronted by the offender, it still leaves that mark. So then when you think about a victim who's been kidnapped, in this case, a poor man spent hours, most of the day, in a trunk in the hot summer on Delmarva's eastern shore, which is extremely hot and muggy, and the fear he must have felt. The last kidnapping victim that was taken at gunpoint as a getaway driver, basically, not knowing what might happen to him or her, whoever the driver was. The person who was shot and survived, you know, what they feel to this day, and was there a sense of, you know, loss of security, and then all of their families worrying about their loved ones as well. And then for the families of these three teenagers, they'll never get to see them meet certain milestones. Um, two of them never even you know, got to their final year in high school. And while Gregory was 18 years old, he never got to graduate. They'll never get married, never have children, you know, know the joys of succeeding in their, you know, their um, careers. All of that was taken away from them, from their families, and that can never be given back, no matter what the sentence. So that brings us to something that I found pretty interesting. There can be very, very wide, um, I guess you'd say, array of feelings when it comes to the application of the death penalty within both the legal system as well as even within the victim's families. I'm just going to go over a couple of quotes by law enforcement and an attorney um, 
you know, what they said after Thanos's conviction and sentencing to death. We've heard from Thanos's attorney. Um, this next um, quote is going to come from a young officer at the time when you know Thanos committed these crimes. His name was Mike McDermott, and he said, I was working on the shore when Thanos was caught. The only reason he was put to death was because he demanded it. You would have thought he was Hannibal Lecter the way he was handled. He would have killed again, and I don't have any problem with that application of the death penalty. So looking at this, I actually see two trains of thought that I can take away from it. So it's very clear that McDermott is definitely good with the death penalty. But what I questioned earlier was, is this state sanctioned, you know, suicide, basically, that's even mentioned in here in a roundabout way. It said because he demanded it, that that can call into question Thanos's mental state. Then you kind of measure that with the part where he said he would have killed again. So there's a lot of a balancing act within that one quote. Now, going on to Randy Coates, who was um, the Worcester County State Attorney. And if you are looking this up, Worcester looks like it's spelled like Worcester um, without the H, but it is pronounced Worcester. Um, he said, personally, I don't feel that strongly one way or the other about the death penalty. But if anybody on earth deserved to be put to death, it was John Thanos. He had no redeeming value as a human being. He was unique in his evil. And that's a strong statement to say that a person has no redeeming value as a human being. That's one of the strongest statements to me that you can make about another person. Now, um, Lois Burton was Gregory Taylor's mother, and she supported the death penalty. In another article that was not um, specifically about this case, but it was about the death penalty, um, she was quoted as saying, I definitely have no problem with the fact that John Thanos was executed. I think it's only fair that the death penalty be kept and be enforced for those of us that have to suffer through appeal after appeal. I don't really understand the statements of the inhumane way they have to die. I think my son died a very terrible death, end quote. So just to clarify, she does mention the appeals. So even though Thanos had not filed appeals, like I mentioned, other people did file them on his behalf. Um, and as far as her discussing, you know, people making statements about the death penalty being inhumane, she does go back to the way her son died and the fear that he felt. He was taken out to a forested area, area tied to a tree, and, you know, the whole time pleading for his life. So just from the description of the final, you know, few moments of Gregory Taylor's life, it, we know that he was in fear, as I think everybody would be. But in that same article, there was another Maryland woman interviewed. Again, she was not part of Thanos' case, as the article was more on the death penalty in Maryland. Um, but Erica Bridgeford's younger brother was shot in Baltimore and died. 
She said that the death penalty wouldn't do anything to ease her pain. Her quote was, it just felt less and less like justice to me. Vengeance is a very dark, painful place. So this shows the two unique differences of feelings regarding the death penalty from two people who've lost loved ones. And I can see both sides to that. You know, thinking back to if one of my children, goodness forbid, ever, ever, you know, were even just injured by another person, I would feel enraged and I would want justice. And what that justice was, you know, as I've not been in the particular situation of my child being injured in that way, you know, I can see the mother's feelings. I definitely can. I've also been in a situation where I knew that someone who committed murder against someone that I loved was truly remorseful and really wasn't an active participant as compared to others in his, I guess you would say, friend base. And to a certain degree, letting go of, you know, the, I don't, hate is a very strong word, but in the immediate aftermath, I can say I felt hate towards everybody involved in that. But after some time, and in that case, even after just a couple of days, I could feel uh, changes in my emotions and how I looked at each individual. And I know for me, it was very, it was beneficial to let go of the hate against a person who was truly remorseful. So there's, again, just this wide, wide range of emotions. And as no other family member in regards to um, any of Thanos' victims were interviewed that I could find, we can't say that, you know, other um, parents or loved ones would not be on the other side of the coin saying, you know, I don't think that another person should lose their life because I've heard that said in other cases as well. Again, very polarizing topic. Now, you know, what can we really take away from this case besides the, you know, dozens of things we've already discussed? I think, and I said to myself early on, I was not going to inject a lot of personal opinion, but I think it's almost impossible. But I think prevention has to begin with early life. And now we are in a better place as a society to address that. And I think that it's our duty to do so. Uh, at the time that Thanos was growing up, there probably was a lot of feeling of a man's home is his castle, which is, you know, why even if Thanos's teachers, doctors, you know, may have even stepped in, we don't know what the attitude of law enforcement, law enforcement um, at that time would have been. And not just talking police officers, talking attorneys that would have prosecuted it, judges, you know, remembering 
that um, Thanos's final conviction took place in 1990. But, you know, he had been in and out of the judicial system for decades. So, you know, we're going back to the 1950s. You know, really, would there have been a lot of early intervention on Thanos's behalf at that time? But right now, we know that there are children out there who don't have the support that they need, whether it's just the support to be given as far as encouragement, helping to build a child's self-esteem, to encourage the things that they love, to protecting them from the people who are supposed to love them most in their lives. So, you know, within any probably classroom at almost any school, you're going to find children who have a very strong um, home base and have the support academically, emotionally, um, to grow up to be very productive adjusted um, adults. You also then probably have children who have very little support, whether it's, you know, the, the financial situation the family may have, um, you know, whether it's one single parent in the home, you know, who does have to work in order to provide for their child, but does give them the love and support that they need emotionally then, you know, you have the far end of the spectrum where you have children who are being abused. And it, you know, what role does society need to play there? And we need to play an active role in preventing it to begin with. So see something, say something, to not be afraid to become involved. And you know, be a support for those children in those situations so that they know they're not alone and to try to ease that sense of abandonment that they may have um, when a loved one is the person who is abusing them. And then, yes, that means there may become a situation where the state does need to take the child out of that home that I'm sure is extremely traumatic for the child because even though they're living in an abusive setting, that is the only setting they know. So there's so, so many different factors that every different child in a classroom has a completely unique experience. And we need to show a level of support for every single child with recognition that some need more support emotionally, some need more support physically because of types of abuse they may be experiencing. And along with those physical abuses, then will come a need for mental and emotional support as well. And I don't think it's good to make a blanket statement saying, you know, like, this is where society's um, involvement should end. You know, that's not going to help anybody. You know, thinking back to when I was a child, I remember hearing someone once say that they didn't feel like they should have to pay, you know, the city taxes to pay for schools because they didn't have any children, never planned to have children. 
And I know that's at a very, I guess you would say, a base level thinking, okay, well, you know, they're not putting any children into the school system, so why are they paying taxes? It's not only for that reason, but each child that goes through the school systems, they become a member of society. And we want every child to become a very active, productive, well-adapted member of society. And that begins when a child is young. And if for some reason that's not seen when they're extremely young, then as they grow up and these things become apparent, then there needs to be intervention then. The goal is then twofold. It's to support the child give them the resources they need to turn them in to the productive member of society. I know I keep saying that term, but it is really what it comes down to. Everybody wants to be a productive member of society and wants their children to grow to be productive members of society. But on the reverse side of that too, if you take one child that is going through something like this and you turn their life around from possibly, you know, committing crimes and spending time in prison to going out and getting a job, um, raising a family, contributing to, you know, all different aspects of their community. Not only are they doing that, but then their potential victims are saved from, you know, whatever trials and tribulations they would have had to go through. And I think that's something that's often overlooked, that you know, when there is some type of intervention and anybody is given the emotional and mental and even physical support that they need, you're not only changing their lives, but you could be changing lives of people that you don't even think of. Now, in the second episode of this podcast, I covered the story of a man that I thought from the very beginning I would, you know, leave the research, you know, feeling the same way I had at the time of the crimes. And this is a man who shot a number of people in one day very close to where I lived. Many people were shot and survived, but with lasting injury. But two men were left dead with eight children left without their father. But going through the history of that person, he was abused as a child. His brother was as well. And even though that abuser was taken out of their life for a while, eventually they came back into these, um, these boys' lives. There was really no intervention, you know, other than the time period where the abuser was away. Um, you know, it seemed like he had been in jail but the reintroduction of him back into their lives had to make them feel betrayed, um, abandoned, and they continued to be abused after that. And both of the, the sons in the family ended up murdering at least one person. And I ended up leaving the episode with a feeling of, both he and his brother did need to pay for their crimes. I had no problem with them spending the rest of their lives in jail because they hurt so many people. 
But I had to wonder what would have happened if even one person stepped in earlier on in their lives and helped them get, you know, counseling and therapy, um, you know, a recognition that they had been through something horrendous, but there was help there now. What difference could that have made in not only their lives, but in every person that they hurt as adults when they committed their crimes? So I don't know if that's a popular opinion or not. And again, I'm not saying that they should not have been punished for their crimes because they did need to be punished. I'm just saying that things may have turned out differently with an earlier intervention. In Thanos' case, who was, you know, looking at the time frame, it was a much older case then. I don't even know if those interventions would have been there, but even if they were, he does and did need to be punished for the crimes that he committed. Now, one of the arguments that were made... Um, against not only Thanos, but anyone getting a death penalty, especially if they began their criminal career as someone very young, people began to argue, or and they still do as far as you know, the size of the, um, the discussion, about whether or not putting people in jail is good or bad, just in the sense that putting someone around other criminals usually tends to give them more resources to become a better criminal, as well as hardens the person. Um, Thanos was described as a very slight individual, which means, you know, in prison and juvenile detention, he was probably picked on a lot. And that can be said that it both damaged him and also hardened him. So it exposes then um, the criminals early on um, to a regime that focuses more on punishment than it does on the actual rehabilitation. But looking at rehabilitation, unfortunately, no one state budget has the availability to enable the tons of extra staff that would be required to truly work with individual prisoners and get to know their strengths and weaknesses, understand any trauma they may have been through, and focus on the things that that individual prisoner would need to help to contribute to society once they were released. A balance is attempted, but if we were all to be honest, that balance doesn't even get close to where it needs to be most times. You know, I just said there really needs to be almost an availability to work one-on-one -on -one with a prisoner to make sure they get everything they need to be real to be rehabilitated it's nowhere near that and you know again I think it goes back to stopping the crime before it starts by using resources when people are younger you know I truly think that it would use fewer resources um, to help prevent, um, prevent crimes from occurring later. I know we'll never be able to prevent all crimes, but I'm just saying that an earlier safety net will help catch more um, and overall benefit society much better than looking at rehabilitation and punishment 
when people become adults, because I really think once they get into an adult prison, it definitely is more about punishment than rehabilitation, just because there is not enough staff staffing. Um, again, just my opinion, and that's based on the experiences that I've seen personally. Um, you know, I've, I've shared that I've had a lot of personal experience, um, you know, with knowing a lot of people who have been victims of violent crime and how it impacted family, how it impacted, you know, just everybody around them and knowing what I know about the backgrounds of those convicted, I think that earlier intervention is the key. And that's probably cliche because I know a lot of people say that, but just putting it on a personal level, I, I really think personal intervention was a key. And I do stand by any punishments that the offenders received because it does not take away from the fact that they hurt others and that's a pain and grief that that will never be overcome. It then would begin that downward spiral of if we set this these sets of parameters as mitigating circumstances to lessen a punishment, then what happens if the victim of that crime then commits a crime and that's used as a mitigating factor that they were a victim of a crime themselves and so forth. It just would keep going without any possibility really of stopping. So let's just kind of nip that in a bud and say, yes, we can understand that this happened to someone, but it does not then give them the right to go into a community, you know, a society and hurt other members. I did find a quote that Thanos once said that I think gives us an insight as to whether or not he knew what he was doing, whether or not he was competent to understand the pain that he was inflicting. He once said, I have no laws. People are merely my pawns. So this just says to me, he at least attempts to control the narrative. He decides how people see him. And in fact, in prison, a lot of people said he was kind and even soft-spoken, which, which is, you know, absolutely amazing considering how he acted at other times, you know, listening to the first episode, he had many, many court outbursts. So after seeing this quote that people are merely my pawns, it says to me he knows how to act, when to act that way, who to act that way around to manipulate those around him. But he got to a point where, you know, people kind of saw through his facade you know, the one facade was he tried to act tough all the time, but that in a way was kind of posturing because he had felt abused all of his life, not only by his father, but also when he was in prison because he was a smaller statured person. He also would try to be, in the terms used, soft-spoken and gentle when it fit his needs because he was able to probably manipulate people into believing he was a truly good guy. 
that to me shows a competency. He did things throughout the um, crimes that showed that he was competent to understand what he was doing was wrong because he took actions to, um, to hide as far as changing up vehicles. He tried to alter his appearance to look somewhat like Gregory Taylor. So he knew that what he was doing was wrong. There's no doubt about that. Um, and he made conscious and clear attempts to evade justice. Even though he had made a quote to his mother saying he wanted to be killed when it came down to it, you know, as far as you know, being captured, yes, he shot back at police, but he was ultimately captured with, you know, without being injured at all. So just in regards then to I guess the level of culpability of an individual within society is, I'm just going to say that we are humans. We are influenced by many different things in our lives, but most of us have the ability and even attempt to discern the difference between right and wrong, even if we have gone through trauma in our young lives. Every year, thousands and thousands even billions of people make the right choices. They don't steal something because they want it. They just try to work harder. They don't attack someone because someone else treated them poorly earlier in the week. Every day, people make these decisions not to act out on those impulses that can hurt others. They still function as members of society and could probably never imagine hurting someone. But just ending there, you know, I said, we're all humans. And speaking of being human, I just want to bring up a few last points. Were there mistakes made? I'm not talking about recognizing intervention or anything like that. Just plain basic mistakes. Yes. How was he let out early? Now, originally through probably seven or eight articles, I found barely any information at all. The most information I could find at one point was a line just that just said there was a miscalculation with the time that he was to serve. And so at that point, I was looking at it thinking, okay, was there a certain percentage he had to serve and someone put a decimal point in the wrong place or used a wrong percentage? What did they mean? But it was, you know, like I said, near the end of the articles that I was reviewing where I found one that actually said, um, you know, what actually occurred. Each prisoner was given what was termed as good time credits and they based the date of release on that. So probably, you know, like time off for good behavior type of thing. However, the person who was in charge of calculating that credit for John Thanos actually counted credits from an earlier prison sentence, which was the 21-year sentence. So when Thanos was, you know, convicted or um, supposed to serve eight years, the credits from a 21-year sentence were used and from 
what I could kind of interpret in the article, along with the ones for the actual, you know, eight years, that caused him to be released 18 months earlier than his, you know, earliest time frame if those credits had been um, calculated correctly. So 18 months early, which means he would have still been in jail at the time of these crimes if he had not been released early. And so we're, we're to lawsuits. And while I could not find what came from the lawsuits, there were articles that did you know, either allude to or just outright say that the families of each victim was suing the state. And, you know, I will say sometimes I think the U.S. is a very, very litigious society and should not be filing lawsuits um, as often as we do. But in this case, I think it is understandably so. This was a violent criminal that was let out early. And I even questioned the eight years if that was long enough. So to have been let out so early when he had committed violent acts of crime in the past. I mean, that was just a setup for failure. And this was a failure on the ultimate sense. I mean, three people were killed. He had six total physical victims with that crime spree. Three murders, one attempted murder, two kidnappings. And all because someone looked at a wrong sentence. So was this double checked? Did someone else have to sign off on it? The person who made the calculation was fired, yes. But were there safeguards put in place to make sure that this did not happen again? I mean, that seems like a pretty big mistake to make. And, you know, to go unnoticed was the big thing. You know, the other mistake that I have to wonder about is how did he get a gun? So I was relatively young when all of this happened, so I looked up the gun laws at the time, and I found something called the Gun Control Act of 1968. The act follows the premise that we're familiar with, that if you're a felon, you cannot own a gun. You cannot own ammunition. Thanos brought this gun, or bought this gun from a sporting goods store in Salisbury. When I heard he had a gun, my thought was it was some type of private sale. You know, he saw an, like a, an ad on, or in the newspaper, someone was selling something and, you know, he bought it outside of normal channels. But no, it was bought in a sporting goods store. Now, under this act, the 1968 act, the seller is supposed to check with what's called the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. So... You know, it's, um, it's called NICS. So, yes, there's things missing um, as far as the acronym. But this would, you know, basically govern whether or not a person could get a gun. Now, some states, for some reason, would give allowances for a felon to be able to own a gun or ammunition. But there were two issues with this. One is that the selling of the gun would still be under federal regulations. So technically, even if the state gave back those allowances, it was still under federal authority. Um, and 
you know, second was just based on Thanos's actions, I don't think he would have been patient enough to wait for the, um, the check to come back on him. So if he had not really, you know, been able to, however, get the gun from the sporting goods store, he probably would have still found another way to get the gun. You know, so there wasn't anything mentioned about how he was able to get it other than it was at a sporting goods store. You know, did the clerk not follow procedure? Did Thanos talk him into, you know, selling it earlier than the normal wait period? We don't know. But he also was able to purchase ammunition when he was not supposed to do that either. So I think that's something that really needed to have been explored. And if it was, then it should have been more prevalent in some of the articles because as someone who lives in the community, I would want to know how did this happen so I could try to at least feel a little bit more secure. But, you know, if there were any mentions of that, it was in probably paid sites, which, you know, for one, I don't usually go into paid sites because that can add up. But also, I don't want to use sources that other people can't view either. So there will always be two very different trains of thought regarding the death penalty. On the one side, many will say it is never, ever acceptable to kill someone with premeditation, even if it's under the death penalty um, and you've gone through everything, such as the trial and the appeals, that it's never right to take away someone's life. On the other hand, you will have dozens of family members and friends, co-workers, even people that didn't know the victim because, you know, they just live in the community and want to feel more secure. You know, they have another point of view, and especially the families and loved ones, you know, they suffer anguish about not being able to see that person again. And, you know, not seeing that person grow and become fulfilled. And so sometimes the victim's families and loved ones would be very adamant about, um, you know, supporting the death penalty. And even outside the person's families and family and friends, members of the community, again, in, you know, wanting to feel safe and to see what they consider just punishment would still support the death penalty. I believe that there's probably the vast majority of people may fall somewhere in that middle. And that's not saying that an individual at one point in time may say, I don't believe in the application of the death penalty. And then if something happens to one of their loved ones, if their viewpoint would change or even vice versa, if you know someone once believed the death penalty should be um, meted out, if something happens to one of their loved ones, if they change their feelings, thinking that, you know, they don't want to see another life taken. I don't think you're ever going to have a clear consensus about the death penalty in the U.S. at least. I know I do have um, some listeners who are from other countries, so those may be um, in places where the death penalty is not an option. But I know in the U.S. it's always going to be something that brings out 
so many different emotions as it should. You know, I've said from the beginning, the death penalty is not something that should be taken lightly. And I do remember an instance as probably, I, I was probably around 10 or so, I think when Ted Bundy was executed and a child in my class made some type of joke about it. And I can't even remember the joke, but I remember the teacher was in tears because, you know, just of how solemn the application of the death penalty is and whether or not, you know, you believe someone should be put to death for their crimes, you know, knowing that it is an act that is going to end someone's life is a very, very heavy thought. So it, it's something that should continue to always be discussed because if not, you know, people are not going to be able to move ahead. You know, there was a time period where, you know, pretty much, and I'm talking you know, a century or more ago where the death penalty was very commonplace, but there was no like room for leniency. If someone had a mental disorder or, um, you know, say if, you know, they had a developmental disability, then that was not always taken into consideration and the death penalty was still applied. If there were no discussions, we never would have been able to move past those cases and understand that there are legitimate mental disorders where the person may not be able to be held fully culpable. There are also instances of those who do have de developmental disabilities who may not have known what they were doing was wrong. So we have to continue to have discussions, but it's never going to take away the pain that people on any side of this coin feel if they or loved ones have been victims of crimes. I think we have to respect each other's viewpoints because otherwise it's just going to end into a shouting match with nobody listening to each other and not being able to have the respect and understanding of why another person feels the way they do about something that is so polarizing. Someone once told me as far as discussing viewpoints with another person. They said, no matter what, always go into the discussion with respect. And of course, I'm paraphrasing here because I was actually told this probably when I was about 12 or 13. But go into that conversation with respect because for one... If you don't respect another person's viewpoints enough to listen to them and to really give them the respect that they deserve, why would you expect them to listen to you and give you the respect that you deserve? And on top of it, you know what? You may actually learn something from that person and they may actually learn something from you. So enter each discussion with respect and an understanding that the other person has a different viewpoint than you, respect their right to have a different viewpoint than you do, and be open, be honest, and it all came down to respect. 
that's something that's stayed with me my entire life so that even if there are times emotionally I want to jump into a conversation, I always take a step back and say, I can't say what that person has been through in their life and why they hold the viewpoints that they do. And I'm not just going to make an assumption that they're wrong and I'm right or vice versa. That, you know, if you're going to jump into a discussion that you know is very emotion-based, go into the discussion, you know, even if you have to take a couple of deep breaths first, but go in it, go into it in a calm, you know, even manner so that, you know, you're starting off on a good kind of sound footing in the conversation. So I know we've covered kind of a lot of different opinions. Um, there's probably so many things that I've not even gone over through in my notes. But on the other hand, I, I may have actually gone over them, just not in the same order. But this, I know, is a very heavy topic. This was some information regarding specifically John Thanos's case and the state of Maryland, as well as you know, the attorneys, um, law enforcement that were part of the case. But we do have to look at it as a society in general. And that's, that's kind of more where I put my opinion in there, there really was not a way to separate things 100%. I hope that in a lot of ways I tried to represent the feelings of both sides. Um, but if you are listening to this um, or watching on a format that allows comments, please, please be respectful. Because again, we never know what another person's been through in their life. And we want to make sure that we give them the respect that they deserve. And conversely, again, make sure you're giving the other person, the respect that they deserve. All of my contact information will be in the description as normal. If you do have any, you know, case topics that you would like um, to have me cover, please let me know. Now, the last few episodes have been about crime, but I do also look at cases of, you know, natural and man-made disasters and what we can learn from them. So, you know, if you, you do have cases that you want to cover in any of those fields. But I will talk to you all later in about a two, two and a half weeks. That's normally the time frame between episodes. And again, just, you know, please be respectful. Um, and not only in the conversation about the death penalty, but I, I really am a firm believer as far as respecting everybody else's opinion because... You know, if we do so, they'll be more open to listen to us and both of us can learn something from each other. All right. Thank you, everyone. Try to have a good weekend and the next couple weeks. Talk to you soon.